Hello, welcome to Mind and Movement, the podcast, where we discuss mindful movement through dance and through life. On today's episode of the podcast, I am super excited to share my conversation with Miss Jillian Amadi Roberts. She is an anti-racist hip-hop educator currently based in New York, and I have heard her speak at the Prelude panel as well as at Decon 4, and I just love her energy and she has so much to share. We talk about anti-racism and connecting that to dancing. Black and Asian solidarity, and her approach with teaching. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy and learn something from this wonderful woman. Okay, hello. Welcome to Mind and Movement, the podcast. Today, we have the amazing Jillian Roberts. Um, I have heard you speak at Prelude NorCal and also at Decon 4, and I've always just found whatever you say to be super insightful and like concise and engaging. So that's why we're here. Um, Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, Justine, I'm really excited to be one of your your first guests on your podcast and congratulations for doing that. so yeah, my name is Jillian Roberts or Jillian Amadi Roberts. Amadi's my middle name. I am an anti-racist Afro-diasporic dance educator. So that means that I work to actively dismantle anti-Blackness in educational spaces, particularly in dance classes, and to promote the learning and education of Afro-diasporic dance forms. So by day, I teach elementary dance um, at a school here in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And then by night, I, you know, teach the lectures that you (laughs) have uh, attended. And um, I also direct a team here called Mint Dance Company. And um, yeah, I coach one-on-one students um, in different, you know, hip-hop foundations, as well as now a lot more the history and heritage of hip-hop as well. Mm -hmm. I think before we get into like the other questions I have, um, I'm sure people kind of know, but just to like explain, like what is anti-racism and then what is like Afro-diasporic? Yeah, for sure. So anti-racism is the active participation in dismantling racist practices. Mm -hmm. Um, So racism can be present in language and conversation. It can be present in systems. Um, It can be present in intrapersonal and interpersonal interactions. So interactions within oneself or between people. Yeah, so, so racism is about sort of the actions that are demonstrating racist ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so anti-racism is the action that takes power away from racist systems or that dismantles, anti- uh, that dismantles racist ideas. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what anti-racism means to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my action in anti-racism is in my educational spaces, in my classrooms, dismantling racist ideas and promoting pro-Black and pro-not-racist mm. <laughs> ideas. <laughs> yes. And okay, the word Afro-diasporic. So it breaks down into those two parts, Afro meaning deriving from Africa or deriving from a descendant of Africa, mm-hmm. meaning a thing or a person that is a descendant of, of Africa. And diasporic means of that diaspora. And a diaspora is a spreading, scattering, or movement generally of people away from their ancestral homeland. So Afro-diasporic suggests movement away or a result of the movement away from um, the African homeland. Mm. Yeah. As we learned in Decon 4, a lot of that was by force as opposed to by choice, but there's also been movement in the African diaspora that has been by choice um, Mm -hmm. through immigration. But yeah, Mm -hmm. that makes sense. From what it sounds like, like anti-racism is always an active thing? Should be. (laughs) Yes. And I think that seems to be where people are starting to try to ask the questions surrounding how do I just not be racist versus how do I be anti-racist? A lot of people have been quoting this, this the quote that uh, it's not enough to be not racist, you have to be actively anti-racist. And I think that demonstrates that act of being anti-racist is inherently active and not being racist is not an action. 
to not be something is not an action. So to be anti-racist is inherently active. Mm-hmm. But I do think thinking anti-racist thoughts is different than being an anti-racist or having anti-racist beliefs is a step, but it's not the action of anti-racism, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So if you believe something that is anti-racist, you are not an anti-racist until there's some action and actions can be big or small. Actions can be conversations. Actions can be choices to divest in something or invest in something else. They don't have to be always, you know, protests or boycotts or putting yourself in the front line of fire, Mm -hmm. but there is always action involved in Mm anti-racism in some way. So I think uh, something that you were saying earlier is like that you teach the roots of hip hop and like be a dance educator. So I guess like, how does that tie into anti-racism or like what what is the roots of hip hop? How does that tie into anti-racism or like your line of work? Great question. Love it. So the roots of hip hop are tied to the histories, the legacies, the traditions and the creations of people of African descent and of the Afro-diasporic cultures that we come from. Mm -hmm. So the roots of hip hop have to be in the people who created hip hop. And that comes along with the traditions that those people created, the practices that those people um, were practicing together as a community. And no matter what your desire in participating in hip hop is, if you wanna be mostly someone who watches and listens, or if you wanna be someone who dances but not necessarily teaches the dance, if you wanna be someone who creates um, dance based off of your training, if you wanna be someone who does teach and, and spread information and knowledge, authentic connection to the dance and to the material has to come from understanding and empathy. And no matter what your role is, understanding and empathy improves your ability to, you know, participate in hip hop as a culture, whether it's the music or the dance or both. And we know that there are actually five elements of hip hop, not just music and dance. You got, well, if you consider uh, emceeing and DJing as music, you could put them together, but we should consider them as their own pillars. You got emceeing, DJing, graffiti art or writing, and then knowledge, right? So We find ways Mm -hmm. to participate in multiple at the same time or, you know, just stick to one, no matter what your area of interest is in the culture as well. Understanding the roots and the people from which those those practices that we're studying or participating in come, then that understanding and empathy is going to improve your ability to participate in an authentic way. Mm -hmm. I hope I answered the question. It did. And then tying that, like, into anti-racism so like how is that reflected gotcha okay so anti-blackness that's a phrase that i mentioned a little earlier Mm -hmm. anti-blackness is unfortunately uh, an element that is present globally in a variety of cultures particularly Mm -hmm. in the u.s Mm -hmm. but it's present globally this idea that black people are the bottom of the totem pole that blackness is not something to value that black bodies should not be visible or in the forefront of, you know, conversations about culture, especially about like high culture or, you know, what's considered valuable art or culture, Mm -hmm. but it's present, not just in artistic elements and political and environmental and all types of, you know, spaces globally, but particularly again, in the States, when you think about the history of the world, that's a relatively new concept in the same way that like race is a relatively new context, uh, new concept in the history of the world. So it has to do with the interaction between blackness and whiteness or uh, black people and people who are not black. This idea that like, oh, now that we see the differences, we have to create a hierarchy in order to control or maintain these differences. And so bring that back to the idea of anti-racism and how it connects to, you know, educating about hip hop. The issue that is happening right now in hip hop, the hip hop community and the hip hop community in the States, but also globally, Mm -hmm. is that blackness, black people, black bodies uh, are being erased from the forefront of the culture. So when you look up on Google, hip hop dancer, you see white folks and some Asian folks, you know, some Latinx folks, Mm -hmm. a few black people here and there. Mm -hmm. 
if you look up hip hop dances, you see millennium dance complex in Mm -hmm. California and you barely see a black face. And that could be described when you think of communities all over the prominent, the highest paid, the most advertised, most supported, most beloved hip hop, quote unquote, dancers tend to not be black, even though we are the creators and the tradition bearers and the descendants of the people who made this culture, period. And the cultures before hip hop uh, that allowed hip hop to be developed and to flourish. And so what I try to do and what other um, educators who are doing, doing similar work is in sharing the roots of the dance and the music and the culture, it's also a way for us to demand to be seen and to have people understand that we deserve to be seen, not because we're asking for it, but because it's our right, because we made it. And in making that point, we have to point out how racism has led to us being erased in the forefront of this culture. Mm-hmm. So those two processes of being anti-racist and uh, studying Afro-diasporic culture, but dance form specifically, have to be linked because in my education about the African diaspora, about Afro-diasporic dance forms and about how hip hop is connected, I can't not mention the ways in which Black people have been oppressed throughout our time in the States and post-diaspora and onward. Black people have not always been oppressed in the world. You know, African history is way longer and goes back way farther than, you know, the 1400s when we started being enslaved by white folks. But what has impacted particularly African-Americans or Black Americans, but also any uh, Black person who has had to travel or who has whose ancestors have traveled or, or been transported um, because of the, the diaspora, the effects of that are always going to be a part of us. And so, yeah, we have to educate ourselves about it. And then with, with a heavy heart, we have to educate others about it because mm. since so many people want to be involved in uh, hip hop, which is exciting, Mm-hmm. As a hip hop dancer myself, it's exciting that people want to place value in the the dance form that I love so much. Mm-hmm. If the elements of it being my culture and particularly the elements of blackness related to it are being erased in that inclusion of everybody else, that's when I start to to feel the discomfort and see the impact of racism, even if the in- inclusion of others is not maliciously meant to erase us it's Mm -hmm. happening because of racist practices and anti-blackness sentiments of anti-blackness that are present in the states and globally Mm -hmm. Um, I'm trying to think about how to formulate this question Mm -hmm. Um, but essentially it's like because anti-racism is an active thing and you know like it's a lot easier it's a lot easier to like learn about anti-racism and like hip-hop history than to like apply them Right. And then like, I think for a lot of like Asian American dancers, when they think of like actively engaging in anti-racism, they think that they have to give up their jobs to make space for black uh, artists. And that thought might be like really scary for them. So like, how do you, I guess, like manage all of that all together? Yeah. Yes. That's a heavy question, one that I have been thinking a lot about. Um, And I hope that in considering that question, you know, our our Asian American and Pacific Islander folks that are involved in this conversation are also thinking about why we are being pitted against each other in this industry. Yes. White supremacy that has led us both to needing to cling on to our jobs so much so that now we're battling each other for the same position when we should be allowed to have, we should allow to both work. We should be allowed to both have jobs where we're fulfilling our talents. Mm. Um, and the the point at which it becomes a question of like, maybe that job was meant for someone else is if a job that an Asian American or Pacific Islander is holding is with the expectation that you are a tradition bearer or a, a holder of knowledge about a culture that does not belong to you, that then becomes you know a point at which that person might want to think to themselves, okay, 
why do I feel more entitled to this job than would a black person who's equally qualified? I, for example, would not feel comfortable, even if we had the same level of experience or talent or time dedicated to the craft, I wouldn't feel comfortable rather taking the job of teaching tinikling in a dance studio. If, an, if a Filipino American person, you know, had the same qualifications, was there and didn't have a job, didn't have that job. I wouldn't feel comfortable taking that position because I know that that person's identity gives them a, a deeper connection particularly if we have the same qualifications. It becomes a different conversation if that person has never studied tinicling in their life. And I'm, you know, I've been studying for 20 years or whatever, then it becomes a different question. But if we're equally qualified and my identity and my family background and my cultural practices don't align with, you know, that Filipino American person, I don't have, I don't feel that I have a right to take that position. Now that doesn't mean I can't engage in the dance. I can't participate. I can't contribute, Mm -hmm. but there's certain circumstances under which I could say, you know, thank you so much for the opportunity, but I see that my friend over here has, doesn't have a job right. and has the exact same, you know, qualifications that I do. And I feel that th- this might be a more authentic experience um, if that, that person were the teacher. That also could mean that I could focus my efforts on getting together with a community that looks like me and having conversations, you know, with other fellow black people who are interested in tinically. And I could say y'all, okay, so I've been studying under these teachers and with this cultural group. And I want to start to convey some of this information that I've been learning to y'all so we can establish a deeper connection together. And there can be multiple points of exchange between the Philippinex community and the black community, as opposed to getting upset at a, a, you know, a Filipino person for asking me not to do the job, if that makes sense. But again, I don't want to just stop there and think, well, why are people getting mad at me for demanding a job that makes sense for me to deserve because it's part of my culture? Mm-hmm. I instead want to think, okay, so what forces have led us both to feeling this animosity towards each other? Mm-hmm. Um, And it's the idea that like in the history of Asian Americans in this country, which is yes, admittedly shorter than the history of black Americans, but there's so many points of intersection, right? Mm -hmm. That's not to compare them and say that they're similar, but you know, in the same way that our like, you know, our, our Asian and Pacific Islander ancestors fought to get any job that they could find here, black folks throughout history we're only able to do certain jobs and sometimes we're forced to do certain jobs against Mm -hmm. our will. And so we have that understanding of, we all got to eat. We all have to feed our families. And sometimes those jobs that we have to take are not pretty. So Mm -hmm. when we get one that we like and that makes us happy, we want to keep it. Mm -hmm. That understanding is familiar. And so Mm -hmm. maybe looking at the conversation in that way as like, we both got to eat. And I understand that at a base level and thinking like, okay, I am doing something that is part of your cultural identity. So if there's a way for us to exchange where I can still learn and still participate in this culture, Mm -hmm. but maybe the job goes to you because I'm then erasing you from the narrative of your own culture. Mm -hmm. How can we figure out a way for us to both still participate, but for us, for the nature of our cultural identities to be respected mutually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of the questions around like, well, what am I supposed to do? This is my only job, or, right. you know, this is the only skill that I've acquired over all these years. What am I supposed to do? Right. It doesn't have to be like, I quit and never do, you know, I step away from hip hop dance for the rest of my life and I mm-hmm. never do anything. I never make any money off of hip hop dance ever again. And it doesn't, I mean, it's, it sounds dramatic when you say it like that. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> But unfortunately, that is a question that I've, you know, fielded a couple of times now in the past, like six months, yeah. a couple of people have, have asked me that question of like, well, what are we supposed to do? Because now we're hearing this whole, like, give your money to black folks because they don't have it. It's so much deeper than that. And I can't, there's not one answer I can give to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, engaging in conversations like these is definitely a start. I think like 
TLDR <laughs> is, is essentially step back from that initial instinct question and ask yourself, why am I reacting in this way? What thoughts led me to react in this way? Mm-hmm. Is there a way I can reword this question in a way that I won't, you know, regret later, to be honest, but also what are they, what, like, what could the person I'm about to ask, what could that person be thinking while I'm having these same thoughts? What could they be thinking? Just trying to like step into each other's shoes a little bit mm-hmm. and experience that empathy, empathy like I mentioned before, mm-hmm. um, before asking questions that could create more of a divide where we need mm-hmm. to focus a lot more on unity. Yeah. This reminds me of, um, I, I think about this on the daily recently too, but like, I think about Parasite, the movie, like mm-hmm. all the time. And it's like, I don't know if you watched it, but it's like- I didn't watch all of it. Oh, uh, okay. Essentially like the, the the family that the story is around is really, really poor. Mm-hmm. But then, and then they work for this really rich family, right? And then in that really rich family, there was a housemaid that they got kicked out. Like they, mm-hmm. they kicked this housemaid out. And it turns out that like the only reason she was there was because she had her husband hiding in like the basement. Mm. And then there's this scene where it's like, there's a scene where there's like a lot of tension between the poorest and the poorer. And then like the poor is looking at the poorest and is kind of like, well, I'm richer than you. So I have more value than you. And then there's like this like whole fight between them. But you just realize that like it's just all under like the system of like classism. Um, And I feel like this is kind of the same thing a little bit like or at least like very similar where it's like Asian Americans because of the model minority myth has a quote higher standing in white supremacy in you know in that kind of way or like a simulationist kind of way. And so it's like (laughs) there's that tension between I guess like people who don't even really have everything right we're just like pitted against each other all the time absolutely we're both a hundred percent or not a hundred percent but that's exaggeration but we're both absolutely at places of being disenfranchised by you know dominant systems in the U.S. and I learned recently through conversation that I listened to um by some amazing Asian American educators who mm-hmm. are teaching about how the model minority myth was created in order to further marginalize black folks because black people were pitted against Asian American folks as the exact opposite of you know the the minority groups. So the model minority mm-hmm. is oh they they work really hard, they're quiet, they're super super smart, they stay in their lane, they they are as close to white as can be because black folks are lazy and don't want to work and uh, are always asking for stuff and they are reliant on financial aid and Mm -hmm. all those things. So in order to further disenfranchise black folks, this myth that also created so much pressure around Asian folks to be perfect and has seriously harmed a lot of people's mental health to this day, including, you know, some of our ancestors who are, are, or the elders rather, who are being still, you know, put under this oppression today. It's because of this myth that like, in order to separate yourself from blackness as much as possible, stay under the the guise of this myth and you'll be as close to whiteness as possible. But then through the systems that we still see, Asian folks are never considered white and Asian Americans are never fully viewed as American, are always seen under this xenophobic lens of like, yeah, you may have been born here or yeah, you may have gotten citizenship, but you're never going to actually be an American. It's the same double-edged sword of blackness where we were brought here under well, no, I won't say it's the same, but we mm-hmm. face similarly damaging um, expectations of, mm-hmm. well, you know, especially nowadays, it's, well, there's Black folks in media all over the place. You all have your own things. You have BET and you have, you know, there's Black versions, Black-owned businesses, Black versions of stuff everywhere. Mm-hmm. Y'all are, are so much more heavily represented than any other minority in the mainstream space. Like, why right. are you complaining? Why are you asking for your stuff back? Because we'll never be white, we'll never be considered as such, you know, the the amount of 
unfortunately, the amount of people that we've seen blatantly murdered in like in broad daylight on media, it's yeah, it's yeah. it shows that no matter how many conflicts or how many arguments we have between people of color, the root of the issue is white supremacy and this idea that whiteness is the ideal and that, Mm -hmm. you know, white American identity is always what we should aspire to when in turn, we're never going to be treated as such. And it's even more damaging for us to try to paw at each other and try to tear down each other to get to this thing we're never going to be able to reach. Yeah. And I think that instead us finding ways to basically force everybody else to see our value and eliminate that hierarchy by demonstrating our own value as opposed to trying to be the top of the hierarchy and keep the hierarchy in place and just push everybody else out of it. That doesn't feel productive. And obviously with some people's attempts to do that, it's not productive. It's not healthy and not, you know, not what's improving the culture and the people's livelihood or the the livelihood of, of BBI POC folks in the U.S. specifically. Yeah, I feel like, well, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, Talking about like model minority myth just a little bit, just from like my perspective, I think because Asians are usually painted as like quiet and like following the rules that like, we don't, we don't want to make cause trouble Mm -hmm. and like, we're taught to not do that. Also just like within Asian culture as a whole, like we're taught to like follow after the system. And that's why there's like a lack of Asian representation because like, we're just not like, we're just not uh, encouraged to find ourselves at all. Anyways, I think that really contributes to it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And because it's hidden from us that the systems are broken and that the systems aren't made to help us succeed at all anyway, that's like a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, you know, Asian American folks are told if you follow the rules and do your thing and stay in your place, then you'll be successful. But then we realize there's still not enough representation because the systems are not made to help Asian American folks be successful in the same way that they're not made or, and specifically they're made to make sure that black folks are not in power and do not, you know, succeed and succeed in the capitalistic way that we now consider success. But yeah. I guess to tie into the the idea of empathy, because I just think about this a lot too. Um, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to be empathetic. So how do we, I guess, like build this skill of like being empathetic? That's a really great question. Wow. I think finding points of connection, no matter how distant they might be, um, you know, I'll be... I'll be transparent about one of my strategies. I do my best to learn about Asian cultural dance forms, a little bit of their history, a little bit of, um, you know, the movement vocabulary technique or even just language. Mm -hmm. I do my best to learn about that so that when I have conversations with um, Asian American dancers about these topics, I can make points of connection that make like aha moments for, for everyone. So that's why I'll mention what I know about Tinikling and, you know, Sodan Bushi in Japan or, or lion dragon and ribbon dances during Lunar New Year in Chinese culture. So mm-hmm. I try to do my part to learn what I can so that, and I don't have to be an expert in everything, but rather if I know enough to make a point of connection so that when I'm making a point about, you know, wanting my culture to be respected, I'm able to say in the same way that you deserve to have someone respect your culture. Um, in the, in the same way that like, I find it important to understand more facts about Asian American history in, in the country as well. And being able to make those points of comparison about why certain laws are in place and why like civil rights in the U S are also inextricably linked to Asian American history in the States. Like the way that without those policies to be in place, a lot of us wouldn't be where we are. Um, and although, you know, you saw on the forefront of the the civil rights movement, it was a lot of black folks, a lot of Asian American folks benefited from those rights because after gaining the citizenship, they were able to get that same treatment in law and in policies mm-hmm. as such. So, but if I didn't know those pieces of information and go outside my own comfort zone and my 
my space of knowledge already, it would be harder for me to make that, make the, those claims and make those arguments for empathy um, because I would just be sort of talking at a wall or speaking to a closed door or kind of like trying to push, push forward when there's no place to go. So it has to do a lot about like being willing to step outside our comfort zone. And I think, mm-hmm. unfortunately, that's the hard part is convincing people to be willing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when you're on the receiving end, for me, I feel that it's not hard to ask me to be empathetic because I need to ask other people to be empathetic towards me. Um, uh. But I, I'm sure that maybe if you're on the other side um, and you don't feel like you need anyone's empathy, it might be hard to offer it to others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't, I don't have a, a flat answer to that, to be honest, but yeah. I, I do think like bringing conversations back to the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. And yeah, I think about like, I've had friends um, who've mentioned like conversations with their, you know, their grandparents who worked really hard to be here and were told from jump, like, don't associate with those people because they're just going to get you in trouble and mm. X, Y, Z or had other conversations, uh, unfortunately, where people will say like the only stories, you know, this, this is with uh, Asian folks who live in Asia as opposed to Asian American folks. Mm-hmm. It'll be like the only stories that I hear about black people are about be- being violent to us mm-hmm. or about, you know, them being rappers or athletes yeah. or, you know, super rich and famous. So all I know about black people is the rich and famous ones or the ones that are being violent towards Asian folks. So what am I supposed to think when that's all I see in the media? Yeah. It's very much about like, why do we rely so heavily on media then? Have you ever thought to question media? Have you ever thought to question the system? Because if the system has given you all that you need, would you be in a place of needing to hold resentment against other people? Or, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that success or happiness that we're all looking for shouldn't that also allow us to let other people feel that same way? And if we are in a space of still thinking that other people don't deserve the success or happiness that we deserve, then something with the system didn't work because it didn't bring us to that full, that full level of, you know, self-enlightenment. But I know those conversations are tough. Yeah. Those are my strategies. (laughs) Wow. That was my heart. Okay. Um, (laughs) Sorry. That was just a lot. I think to talk a little bit about like emotions and like psychology, there's, it sounds really cheesy, but it's like, are you coming from a place of like fear or are you coming from a place of like love? Because if you're coming from a place of like negative emotions, you end up narrowing your mind and like you, you know, you want to protect like what you feel like you're going to lose. Whereas like if you're truly happy and like feeling joy and connection, then it's called broaden and build theory, but it's like, you actually want to spread this with other people. So that makes a lot of sense that like all of these people who are pushing other people down are just really scared. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and it's hard to say like they shouldn't be scared because systems are set up to basically kill them or keep them from feeling any joy or keep them from reaching any financial or, you know, whatever other type of success. So that's not justifying violent behavior. It's not justifying ignorance. It's not justifying people choosing, choosing to operate within systems that are failing people, Mm -hmm. but it is showing that the damaging nature of these systems comes out and impacts people in a wide variety of ways. And we can't, blame people for being impacted by the system we can blame people for the choices that they make once they've learned that the system is there to harm them going back to your role as a teacher I really wanted to start with this because I like really envy that in the sense of like you speak so one really engagingly with like a lot of tonations because I feel like even when I went to college like a lot of professors kind of just talk like this the whole time time. yes Um, so that's (laughs) amazing and I I think that I find that super engaging and then two like you share a lot of information without it being really overwhelming at least to me 
And thank you. Yeah. And like, it's always like, oh, like she manages to do that really well. And I feel like when I think about being a teacher, there's a lot of like, who is my audience and how do I actually take out information Mm -hmm. and like choose what to share with them? Yeah. So what is your process with that? Great question. And thank you for uh, those kind words. I'm like stressed now. I got to hold up to that. Um, But yeah, so I'm really lucky that, you know, my first job out of college allowed me to get a master's degree in teaching. And I'm grateful that I chose elementary school because I think elementary school teachers have to be able to teach anyone because in order to break down complex concepts and teach them to four-year-old and five-year-old and six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year olds, it requires so much forethought, planning, preparation, and like flexibility. So I'm just really grateful that I got to, to engage in that training. And I am still engaging in that training every year um, in order to, to teach in the public school system here in New York City. You have to engage in professional development all the time, constantly. Mm-hmm. And so I'm learning every day, every week, every month, every year, how to be a better teacher, learning new strategies all the time. But one that's really stuck with me through my teacher training is backwards planning. So imagining what goals you want your students to have achieved by the end of your time with them. What do you want um, your students to be able to do, to know, to understand, to demonstrate? And then I like breaking up things into groups of three. So you'll see in like, you know, my my presentations, I'll have like three images. I'll have three bullet points, three sentences. Mm. Um, But breaking down concepts into sort of like beginning, middle, end that helps me a lot. And that, that segmenting, that chunking helps kids understand big pieces of information by breaking it up into smaller chunks. That's also a psychological phenomenon. It sounds like you know a lot about psych. So (laughs) uh, yeah. So I studied childhood, uh, child development in my psychology undergrad degree, and I got to do a lot of research on, um, fairness and morality and things like that. Um, I'm doing that right uh, now a little bit. social cognition. That's so cool. Yeah, that's so cool. That was my thesis was about fairness and uh, in-group bias. Oh my gosh. Can you you just talk about it really quick? Like, what did you do? How did you discover? Sorry, I'm such a psych nerd. I wanted to speak with somebody about psych for the longest time. Anyways, go ahead. Amazing. That's great. Oh gosh. Okay. I have to really think back to the the correct vocab because I'm old. So my thesis was a long time ago. (laughs) Um, But okay. So minimal group bias. So what we did was take the larger concept of like how people in social groups work really hard to protect each other and want to be, it actually relates to what we're talking about here, but people in social groups want to protect each other. And when they have a resource to allocate, they, adults especially, Uh tend to allocate those resources to their in-group, to a group they're a part of, Uh as opposed to being fair or uh, egalitarian and allocating that resource to anybody who is there and can receive it. And I wanted to understand, is it the nature of the type of group that makes people, uh, that makes people act that way? And does that develop at a certain point in childhood? And does it have to do with the value of the thing that is being allocated? So what I did was I developed with my uh, professor a game, a really simple game um, with young kids. The in-group was just, it just had to do with the color of a t-shirt you were wearing while playing the game. Mm. And then they saw an image of two people, one wearing the same color t-shirt as them and one wearing the opposite color t-shirt as them. And they were allocating resources between those two people in the game. Mm-hmm. Those resources were like little toy things, a jewel, a shell, a cotton ball, a, a whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them were like cooler, like flashier, and some of them were more boring, um, but they were all, you know, toy things. But for kids, toy things have a lot of uh, mm-hmm. difference in value. Yes. And I did this game with kids between the age of five and 10 And I found that around age eight is when the switch happens, when we decide I'm going to give more to the girl wearing the same or to the person wearing the same color shirt as me. It was across gender as well, even though my study was limited because we only studied girl versus boy, not with uh, non-binary or gender non-conforming people. So I definitely would 
love if I was still in college or if I went back to grad school at my university, if I expanded on my thesis, I would love to expand that. But so we found that, yeah, around age eight is when kids start to be more, more preferable to the person in the um, same in-group as them. Mm -hmm. Remembering that the in-group is literally just is the color of the shirt yes. the same? Okay, great. And under age eight, so five, six, seven, kids were like, okay, well, last time I did this one, so I'll do this one this time. Or like, you know, looks like they might be sad if they don't get any, so I'll give them this time. It was, you know, equal distribution. They didn't care. They didn't have an idea that like the color shirt meant anything meaningful. Uh-huh. Um, but around age eight, thinking about the things that are happening around age eight in society, what they're being taught at that that age around third grade, the things that they're learning in books, the things that, you know, the conversations that parents and family members and teachers are starting to feel comfortable teaching the kids by age eight, it was pretty consistent that kids were like, you were in a blue shirt, you get all the stuff. You were in a red shirt, you get all the stuff. Oh my gosh. Um, Yeah. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. I always, I always thought that like the in-group bias was like something that we were born with. (gasps) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. It's taught. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. Wait, I feel I feel like my whole world's like shattering. Right? <laughs> yeah. Because when you when you think about it, it's the value of fairness that we're taught, you know, from from a baby. The value of fairness doesn't get associated with the value of being in a in a group. And you don't understand I'm in a group because of this similarity. You don't get that when you're super tiny. You just know I would be sad if I didn't have that toy. And if someone else didn't share with me, that would make me sad. That doesn't sound fair. They don't have the same. That's not fair. I'm going to see if I can make this fair. And then you're taught, oh, you should value in groups because they can get you this food that you like or a play date or, you know, whatever value in society. You're taught to value your in group above others. And then that value of fairness becomes more, well, I want to be fair to my people and now I know that this idea of my people is something that I should carry with me throughout my life, as opposed to people being my people. That's something we have to actively. That's so cool. With. I have to bring this up with my other professor, but that is so Hi. cool. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. I got to tell my professor that I got a chance to talk to someone outside our little university about it. Yeah. Cause I don't know. My, my professors have been studying a lot about like moral cognition, mm-hmm. kids idea of punishment. Mm just like all these things and like they they try to work with like really young kids like four to five year olds or even like 18 months and I'm like I don't yeah I'm like that first of all that kind of work is really hard to do (laughs) because like they can do a bunch of different things you have no idea how to interpret them Mm -hmm. anyways that was such a huge tangent I just needed to ask uh we were talking (laughs) about your role as a teacher (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) my bad (laughs) it's okay um Um, Oh yeah, I think I was saying <laughs> strategies, right? I was yeah. sharing strategies that I that I use. Yeah, so backwards planning, thinking about the end goal, um, breaking it up into chunking pieces. We started talking about chunking and then psychology, and then that's yes. where we <laughs> But yeah, so another skill I learned in being trained in teaching elementary school is mm-hmm. that the way you communicate, like the way you sound when you communicate information, matters just as much as the information. Mm-hmm. and how much of it you're trying to get across to them. Kids are super sensitive about tone, sensitive to tone, sensitive to how long you're speaking and sensitive to things like you mentioned, like intonation, um, the way that heavy information is presented in a way that allows them to process it before they have to move on to the next thing. For me, I also, have become more self-aware of my own tendencies. Growing up, I talked really fast and my dad uh, started getting progressive hearing loss um, Mm. when he was like in his fifties, which is like a little bit early for someone to start losing their hearing. Typically it happens more, you know, when they're seventies or eighties and he Mm. was in his fifties. So it felt kind of early and I had to learn some strategies to make sure that my dad could understand what I was saying when talking to him. Then he started getting hearing aids, but even with the hearing aid, there's still certain strategies you have to make sure that you do. Like you have to make sure you have the person's attention before you start talking, because even if they can hear that you're speaking, they're not sure that you're speaking to them. And so they're not processing what you're saying unless you have their attention. 
yeah, so so some of the way that I probably speak has to do with sort of training myself to make sure my dad and I could communicate well. And I'm still mm-hmm. learning that because he's teaching me more and more and he's learning more about his own hearing loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's teaching me more and more about how that's helpful. So some of that is probably has to do with the speed or tone, but a lot of the, the tone does have to do with the fact that I need to be able to communicate with pre-K students mm-hmm. up to you know fifth graders. And I have to make those adjustments every day because I teach multiple grades every day. Mm. So I have to be flexible. Um, even if I'm teaching them the same content, I need to be able to communicate it in a way that's understandable to the different age groups at different points of the day. So it's a lot of work, but with all that practice, it becomes second nature, luckily. Yeah. But sometimes it definitely does. Uh, I do find myself using a teacher voice when speaking to adults and having them be like, Yes, that is helpful. However, I would have understood it if you just spoke to me regular. But um, <laughs> but when I'm teaching something, like not just in a regular conversation, obviously, hopefully my teacher voice doesn't come out. But when I'm when I am teaching something, the teacher voice is helpful for a reason. So I I do try to use it so that um, the information is palatable. And then you figure out how to have a teacher voice that sounds the way it needs to sound per age group. Interesting. So I have my pre-K teacher voice. I have my third grade teacher voice. I've got my middle schooler teacher voice, high school, and then my adult um, teacher voice. And that all kind of is uh, adapted to what I know people, you know, I don't like saying typical because there's like neurotypical right. and there's like neuroatypical and then mm-hmm. people of varying ability, some people varying ability don't have any issues understanding voice. So, but, but the way that an average statistically average uh, audience of people would understand. So, yeah, I think those are, that may be enough strategies. So, so to sum that up, like what are some of like the most important things to keep in mind while being a teacher? I think you said your tone Mm -hmm. and then (sighs) flexibility. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then anything Yeah, so, else? so tone, readiness to pivot, flexibility um, in whatever you plan, you've got to be able to have a couple other trains of thought. If a student asks a question that you didn't anticipate or, you know, something happens that interferes with your timing or, you know, anything like that, that flexibility is super important. Mm-hmm. Backwards planning, like I mentioned before, like having the end goal in mind and then planning backwards in order to to achieve that goal, breaking up information into uh, smaller chunks and like bite-sized chunks, something that if you were learning, you would appreciate being taught in that succinct of a way. Practicing also, it's annoying and kind of hard, but having an audience of people that know you and love you and will give you honest feedback um, is really important, especially if you're like trying to newly get into teaching Doing it for the first time is really hard if you haven't had any practice Mm -hmm. and taking the feedback and actually making a change in response to the feedback. Because if you get feedback and then you just do the same thing a second time, you're not going to improve or at least not fast enough. Record anything that you can so you can go back to watch yourself. Mm. Yeah. A lot of things. And then (laughs) so like right now, what is, I guess, like the most challenging thing about teaching? Well, considering the pandemic and the way that I've, (laughs) I now have three different methods of teaching at the same time. So I'm teaching a typical dance class in person. I'm teaching pre-recorded remote dance classes. Mm -hmm. And then I have some students, not that many, luckily still, the majority of the school is either fully remote or fully in person. Mm -hmm. Um, I still do have a group of students who does some work in person and some online and remote. So I have to find a way to navigate all of that. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that's been toughest for me is making sure that my remote students feel the same level of attention and engagement and interaction Mm -hmm. as my in-person students. Um, It's for me, I feel like it's unfair that my remote students don't get to see me live every day. It was their choice or their parents' choice or family's choice <laughs> yeah. um, to, to stay home because there have been points in the year where they've been able to, to come in um, if they feel comfortable. 
-hmm. but it just is unfortunate that I'm not able to be interacting with them at the same amount of time that I am with my in-person students. Mm. Um, so I try to like any, uh, any level of engagement that I get from my remote kids, I try to praise and, and tell their, their families that I'm thankful for them. And even if, you know, if they get something wrong or they don't do something hundred percent perfect, that's really not a priority. The fact that they're engaging at all when I don't know their schedule and, and they might have to be, you know, putting forth extra effort just to, just to do my class. Some of my students, unfortunately, choose not to do dance at home and just focus on their reading, writing and math and science and history stuff. Mm. So I have to be just grateful for any kid who is learning from home, who does decide to take my class, but for the ones who really want to be pushing themselves to get better faster, I feel mm. like they're sort of getting the short end of the stick. So that's the hardest part for me is I guess um, managing that and navigating feeling those feelings of not fully educating that group of kids um, mm -hmm. because of these circumstances so is the hardest thing about like teaching online just that they have less time or is it just like it's also harder to engage them less individualized interactions mm -hmm. I think there is less time also and that is unfortunate but I think the hardest part is like that they have well yeah I guess that they have less time interacting with me on a personal level and getting the feedback that can help them improve as a dancer or help push them to be a more critical thinker about the dance space. Mm. Um, they're getting a more surface level when I really try to push my in-person kids to go beyond um, that mm. surface level. Mm. And I, I encourage that same thing from my remote students, but they're not able to get that like immediate feedback from me that, that might push them to get to an aha moment that my in-person students are able to do because I'm there you know, bouncing off ideas with them, but then my at-home kids, unless they have a grown-up or a, a family member who's doing the work with them and asking them those questions to get them to those aha moments, they, they might not be experiencing that same level of like enlightenment and joy. Yeah. Um, okay. Last question before going to the rapid fire ones. Okay. Um, lastly, what is the most rewarding thing about doing what you do or teaching? <sighs> Great question. I, so I mentioned aha moments. That's something that I, uh, a phrase that I co-opted from my charter school uh, training, but <laughs> that really is kind of my favorite part of teaching the moment when a kid understands a concept that took them a while to understand yeah. or can do a move that they weren't able to do before. Or an aha moment could also be a kid coming up with an idea based on something that you said that you never could have imagined that they said, or a kid who was behind for a lot of the year finally catching up and other kids uh you know egging them on and cheering them on for achieving something they didn't think they could achieve a kid coming up with something you never thought they could have come up with a kid who's not really engaged maybe who like doesn't really enjoy being in my classroom finding something to enjoy or like taking a moment to be engaged or, or making a positive change in some way that um, is sort of serendipitous or spontaneous those moments are what do it for me and sometimes they're more frequent and sometimes they're few and far between so I get you know yeah kind of exhausted thinking about like oh I wish that we could all just be together so I could facilitate as many of these as possible but um, you know in this this new age of educating during COVID you find yeah. different ways to experience those or you know facilitate those aha moments so yeah love all of that thank you okay going uh, into like the speed round what is one specific moment that brings you joy every time you think about it is it in teaching in dancing or anything so? yeah I guess my parents at my graduation from college had pride in their face oh that's cute, that's cute. Yeah. um <laughs> What is a mantra that you live by? Ooh, ooh, ooh. I got two. One is the best teachers are even better students. Mm -hmm. And the other is hard work beats talent when talent fails to work hard. Period. Period. <laughs> <laughs> That's a poem right there. <laughs> okay. What is something that you had to unlearn the past year? I've been working to unlearn ableist language and hetero cis heteronormative language mm. so using language that 
undermines people with differing abilities mm-hmm. or using language that uh, upholds the gender binary or heteronormativity. I, for as long as I can remember, have actively sought to love anybody, no matter if they have uh, normative identity markers or not. Mm-hmm. But I have been realizing in everyday interactions that if I'm going to sort of demand respect from my disenfranchised and marginalized culture that I come from, Mm -hmm. I got to also be willing to do that for everybody else. And I feel that the communities that are least publicized in, in conversations about marginalized identity and sort of providing space for marginalized people are people with differing abilities and folks who don't conform to cis-heteronormativity. Mm-hmm. So I've been working to get all that language out of my vocabulary mm-hmm. and be as it inclusive, but not in the like way that the Gen Z TikTok generation is using the word inclusive or- Which even, is what? <laughs> even, even better because it's not, it's not only them. The, the way that like white folks, rich, uh, rich white men in power that are running systems, the way that they're using the word mm-hmm. inclusive in order to uphold these systems that we know are not okay. That's mm-hmm. even worse. Not, yes. not just the Gen Z uh, TikTok folks. It's not, it's not just them. I don't know if I've seen those. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It'll, it'll be things like, we, we developed a committee about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it'll be like, you hire one black man. Oh no. One Asian woman, one indigenous person. And with each of those tokens, they will serve all of the functions of making sure that you're not racist in your system. So oh girl, no. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. very bad. That's, this is a really quick tangent, but I was listening to Brene Brown. She was saying that like, there's, there's a difference between like diversity and inclusion. So it's like, just because you have diversity doesn't mean they're included. Mm-hmm. Okay. And equity is separate from both of those. Yes. That <laughs> I forget that word all the time. You understand the differences and you give people what they need to be empowered. Not you give everyone the same thing and that's it. Right. Because mm-hmm. if everyone gets the same thing, but it, but some people are already forcefully being put under mm-hmm. or being blocked from access for things, they mm-hmm. need more than just the same as you. They need more than you. Yes, absolutely. Okay, complete the sentence. Dance is? Expression. Mm-hmm. And culture. And then complete the next sentence. I am. I am learning and teaching at the same time, all the time. And then lastly, um, I wanted to raise awareness to, you know, um, a activism org that is doing the work. So tell us if you have one so that everybody can know. Yes. Uh, Yes, I do. Abolitionist Teaching Network is a group of people um, supported by the Dr. Bettina Love, who I'm a huge fan of. I'll read their mission statement. Abolitionist Teaching Network's mission is to develop and support those in the struggle for educational freedom, utilizing the intellectual work and direct action of abolitionists. And they're doing a lot of amazing amazing work on um, empowering communities of color, minority communities, marginalized communities, um, and creating educational spaces where folks of color and marginalized folks are able to freedom dream, um, which is a concept that I've been learning a lot about and just really enjoying. So similarly, uh, in the work that I'm trying to do, they're dismantling you know, systems of anti-Blackness, but generally dismantling systems of oppression in educational spaces and creating new spaces where education is a space for everyone to freedom dream including educators and those who are being educated, so students. Yes. Yeah, so they're, they have a lot of like panels and discussions and talks and events um, and on their website, there's a place for you to donate if you would like to do that. Absolutely, absolutely love that conversation with her. I feel like I learned so much and I walked away from that conversation feeling a little bit more hopeful about the world because there's people like her just doing the most and 
Her approach with teaching is something that I really, really admire. And her flexibility, as well as understanding and empathy for other people, I just really look up to. And I think something that I learned from this conversation is about the origins of model minority myth and really made me realize how much our society has pit us against each other. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you stay tuned for next week.